0: For our reading from Isaiah. You may have noticed we rearranged things a bit this morning with our readings, but I'm preaching on Isaiah, so it seemed appropriate. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me. Holy God, you have a word for us today. A word of comfort, a word of challenge, a word of hope, and a word of guidance for our lives. Make our hearts soft and plant your word in us, that it may bear fruit through our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, today, uh, I want to let you know I've put sermon notes in the mobile app, too, so if that's helpful for you, you can follow along there with some of these references, um, because today we begin our Advent journey, right? And, and we still are restless hearts to, to breathe in hope and, and joy and peace and love, and rather than restlessly waiting in this time, we can rest in our waiting. As we remember the story of Israel waiting for the coming Messiah of times of, in times of old, we're reminded of a profound truth for our lives today. Whatever you find yourself waiting for, God's salvation is coming. We hear this over and over and over again, this promise. And, and throughout the season of Advent, we hear this most clearly through the prophets, particularly today Isaiah who's always pointing us toward Jesus. You see, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were waiting for God's salvation. And maybe you find yourself waiting for God's salvation today, too. Waiting for God to show up. Waiting for God to come through. And so as we enter this season and wrestle with our own waiting, I think it's helpful to begin our journey by looking back Asking questions like, who was Isaiah? What were these people, God's people, waiting for when they were waiting for God's salvation? What precisely were they hoping for? And then what does God's movement, all the way back in history, teach us about how we might experience God today? So I want to start by thinking about the prophet Isaiah who was he? When did he live? What was his ministry about? And what was happening during that time so to help us understand how would the people in Isaiah's time have heard these words? So I want to do a little uh, history lesson on Isaiah for a moment. The book of Isaiah is a very long book. Uh, it's one of the longest uh, books of all the prophets. And those who study it notice three distinct sections in this book of isaiah scholars and theologians often refer to these as first isaiah second isaiah and third isaiah now they're not delineated that way they didn't come about that way we have this whole book but there's some marked shifts and it seems that the first 33 to 40 chapters or so are a little bit different probably written by the actual prophet isaiah himself Uh, and then the second isaiah the second section around 40 it shifts and it's clear that this was written later by another prophet um, carrying on the ministry and tradition of Isaiah. And then there's third idea, Isaiah, this last section. So this was written most likely over hundreds of years by different prophets, somewhere between maybe 740 BC, people think. Uh, that's about the time Isaiah seems to have been born or lived, all the way up through 580, or 548 BC, which is the exile time. So what was happening during this span of over 150 years? Everything changed. Everything in the lives of God's people changed. There was the Assyrian exile first in 721. The northern kingdom, Israel, was, was gone. It was wiped out, taken away. And at that time, Judah remained in the south. And that's when Isaiah was doing his work. This book of Isaiah, the prophet himself, he saw all this happening in uh, the north with this Assyrian threat and the Israelites destroyed. So first Isaiah is happening during this Assyrian exile in the north around 721 BC, and then second Isaiah, uh, written later, was through the Babylonian destruction where the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed, and then third Isaiah, written while they were in exile, God's people longing to return home back to their homeland. They'd been displaced. And when we think about this exile story, this experience of God's people, it's not just about their country being invaded or conquered. It's so much more. It's about this attempted eradication of their entire culture, their history, their identity. And this is the backdrop of all the prophets, including Isaiah. And Isaiah, the original prophet, lived and prophesied mostly in the south, in Judah, in the Jerusalem area, probably 740 to 700 B.C. or so. And many of these prophetic books, they overlap with the history we read about in First and 2 Kings in 1 and First and Second Chronicles. And so Isaiah's story shows up first in, in the narrative in 2 Kings chapter 19, and we learn that he worked closely with King Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is important because Hezekiah was one of the only three, of only three good kings in the Old Testament. Of all their kings, only three of them were claimed as faithful. Uh, if you read through the history, all the rest of them say something like this, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not a good legacy to leave behind. And so, what did Hezekiah do that was good? He was faithful, not perfect, but faithful. It was King David, King Hezekiah, and King Josiah were the only three. So I want to share this passage about Hezekiah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestor David had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah after him or among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And so when they were waiting for God's salvation, Isaiah and Hezekiah and the people, they were waiting from this very real and physical danger. A warring enemy was banging on their gates. It was ravaging their villages, killing and deporting their people, their family, their neighbors. And so Isaiah watched in horror as their northern relatives were wiped out. And Isaiah had to help Hezekiah decide how to respond to this, how to resist this oppression, and how to try and trust in God, even when this threat was bearing down on them. But they did withstand. And in Isaiah's lifetime, in Hezekiah's, Jerusalem did not fall. Judah was not taken over by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom. Although years later, Jerusalem does fall to Babylon. But through it all, Through all the prophets, God's people are trying to hold on to hope in God's salvation, God's promises. So with all of that in mind, I want to look back at a few verses from this reading from Isaiah today and see how the people in Isaiah's time might have heard it. First, in the days to come, that indicates that there's a future coming. Don't give up. There will be a better day. This threat, this pain, it won't last forever Next, the mountain, the house of the Lord. This is referring to the temple of Jerusalem. They were this symbol of God's presence with them that gave them hope and strength. Next, all the nations shall stream to it. Tiny little Judah that was uh, surrounded by these superpowers, saying that the Lord, the God of Jacob, was going to be the one who would teach right paths and instruction, and the word of the Lord would go out to all of these other nations. And what this means is so that rather than nations coming in to attack and destroy and conquer, in those days to come, they'll come to worship, to learn, to be taught, to hear the word of God. That's a complete reversal of the reality that they're experiencing. In those days to come, God will judge between the nations. God will settle disputes and therefore war will cease to be. And note for Isaiah's people, this isn't about some ideal about war. It's not about something on the other side of the globe. It's happening right now, right in their midst. And yet Isaiah goes on to speak of a day when God's salvation will be so complete, so full, so absolute that people won't even need swords and spears anymore. They will be melted down and recreated into tools that cultivate life rather than taking life. So on one level, Isaiah's words are very specific to this circumstance, to to Hezekiah and others in his day. But on another level, Isaiah knows that he's speaking about something much further off, something much bigger, much more universal than they could comprehend. A salvation that will never cease. A salvation that will go out into the entire world, in fact, the entire cosmos, in Jesus Christ, the one who is to come. And when we hear all this, you might find yourself wondering, Sure, but look back, look at the world today. There's still war. There isn't some holy mountain from which God sits and reigns over all the earth. So, was Isaiah wrong? Well, many theologians have written about this over the centuries, and some of their insights, I think, are very helpful for us today. Looking back, Origen of Alexandria writes that we have to remember that this word of the Lord that came to Isaiah is the very same word. We read about in John's gospel, the word that became flesh, the word that was God, the word that was with God in the beginning. Augustine writes that this temple Isaiah speaks about that will draw all people, all nations, it's not a geography, it's not a physical place, it's a person named Jesus Christ who draws all people to himself. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyons, talks about the word, this teaching that will go out from Jerusalem is that teaching that goes out through the apostles. Through the early church to every corner of the earth, which happened. But then when I hear this beautiful vision of a future where, where war will cease, where weapons become tools of the field, I, I struggle. I wonder how long, oh Lord, because there's still war. There's still weapons. Maybe this just isn't true. Maybe this can never be. But then I read this week what Athanasius writes. He said that he looks around in his day and he noticed that there were pagan tribes sacrificing to idols who were constantly warring and plundering with their neighbors, pillaging. But then when they come to faith in Christ, something changes. They're transformed and they begin to cease these ways of violence and they settle down and become farmers, literally laying down their weapons and repurposing them into tools of the field. Think about stories we hear today about people who were maybe in gangs or living lives of violence, and they come to faith, and everything changes. The violence ceases, and peace comes. Friends, waiting on God is tricky business, and one of the greatest challenges of waiting on God's salvation is that God's ways are not our ways. God's time is not our time, but God's promise to us holds fast. Promises like what we hear in Isaiah chapter 7, that therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone, everyone in all the world who believes will not perish but have eternal life. Or Deuteronomy 31, where God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. What are you waiting for today? Maybe you find yourself waiting for test results, afraid of what the future holds. Maybe waiting for a relationship to be healed or waiting for healing from one that is beyond repair. Maybe you're waiting for a relationship to begin, searching, hoping. Maybe you're waiting for relief, feeling trapped and burdened, stressed and overwhelmed by work and, and pressures bearing down on you. Or maybe you're waiting. For provision. Maybe the bills are piling up, finances are tight, and you're looking for a brighter day. Whatever it is you're waiting for, God's salvation is coming. But how do we hold on to hope in the midst of our struggles? Well, first we remember. We look back on those experiences in our lives when God showed up in the past, and we remember those stories. We remember the stories of our faithful family and friends that that can tell us that although they walked through the valley of the shadow of death, God came and found them and rescued them. We remember. And the other thing is we don't wait alone. We wait with one another, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, and always remembering that we wait with the one who will never leave us or forsake us, Jesus walking with us, Emmanuel, walking beside us always, even in and perhaps especially in the waiting. When we remember and when we don't go it alone, our waiting, it's still hard, but it need not be filled with fear and anxiety. We find hope. We find peace. We may even find joy because we know that God's salvation has come in the past and is near us today, and that means that the best is yet to come. Amen.